We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines, the weekly radio show where we look at what's really going on behind the headlines. I'm Joe Quinn, and my co-host as usual this week is Neil Bradley. Hello, everyone. Neil is on fire tonight, as you can <laughs> let you know. He has got all sorts of things to expose and reveal <laughs> and lots of other words like that about what's really going on on this planet and how just about everybody in the world, with the exception of a few, uh, have no clue whatsoever about what's really going on and how things really work. So as usual this week, that's what we're going to discuss, uh, touching on the major uh, stories of recent days and weeks. And... Yeah, so without further ado, Neil, let us have it. <laughs> Thank you, Joe, <laughs> for that glorious introduction. Well, I do my best. Well, I've been sitting on this story for a couple of weeks, trying to understand what the hell happened in Greece. I mean, momentum builds up, crisis in Brussels. Oh, God, they're calling a referendum, crisis of democracy, because... They actually play the democracy card. They have their referendum, and suddenly the wind blows in completely the opposite direction. I'm trying to understand why, and take stock of what's happened since then. I mean, Greece has been completely shafted. Greece was completely shafted before. I hadn't realized the extent of it, but in this seven, six or seven years of austerity, well, including the austerity program beginning 2010, plus a couple of years of their economy beginning to shrink. Greece's economy has shrunk a total of 27%. That's nearly by a third. There is no comparison for that in the modern era. The closest similar crisis was in North Korea in the late 90s, I think, which ranked by 21%. Hence, it's a basket case today. But uh, this is totally a... Well, it's approaching a whole different magnitude of disaster. Artificial in the sense that it's monetary in nature and therefore it's about power, it's about politics, not about finance and economics. It's not a natural disaster, it's a man-made disaster. So I need to understand it. And a lot of people have, I'll call them mutual suspects, some of them are superb analysts, uh, people who who write regularly, more regularly than I do, and they... uh, They've come up with various angles on it, and some of them are satisfactory, most are not, simply because of the speed with which the Greek government turned around, the totally unexpected way in which they took a mandate for going the direction they were already moving in since they were elected in June, in January, mm-hmm. with which to reverse and go 
pre-election, pre-everything. <laughs> Worst deal ever. Worst deal ever. What happened? Well, the impression I get, just as a general impression, <clears throat> I think most people could probably, uh, would probably agree with this, is that uh, it seems that the Syriza government, uh, the Greek government, uh, for a period of time leading up to or during this, uh, these discussions they had with the EU and IMF, that they were pretty sure they were onto a, a good thing, that they were, they had it in the bag, they knew what, knew what they were doing, and they were going all in, and they were committed, and they, it was a, it was a slam dunk type thing, you know, they were happy. And then, kind of at the 11th hour, something went horribly wrong, it all came crashing down around their ears, and they were forced to, go kind of cap in hand to uh, the EU power brokers and say, uh, okay, um, sorry, uh, whatever you say, yeah, we'll do. You know, they basically abased themselves. So it was a very... Grotesquely. Yeah, it was a very, it was very, very shocking or a very stark uh, manifestation of that kind of dynamic, you know. Um, but they were very confident. They looked like they... Uh, had a few tricks up the sleeve. Well, held a lot of cards, and they, yeah. they knew that they could. They felt confident that they could um, put pressure on uh, the people they were dealing with to get what they wanted, and then it didn't work out. Then went all in, and it it fell flat. Uh, so theirs was a bluff, and it was called. Well, that's one thing that it was maybe a bluff. I mean, what I'm suggesting, maybe even say the idea of a bluff, is that they were they were that they did have good reason to think that they had a good hand. Um, but it turned out at the last minute that they, it didn't work out. Uh, maybe, I mean, that's why people are talking about betrayal by, you know, Russia, who was supposed to come and ride to the rescue and give them all this money. Well, that's the most attractive explanation I've found so far, that at a geopolitical level, this can be explained. Right. That Greece, the Greek leaders prior to becoming Syriza Minister of Government, had already established relationships with Putin and his people, mm-hmm. going back a year or even more in some cases, and that there was some background arrangement or potential arrangement arrangements between them, mm-hmm. and that somehow they were in this together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that what happened at the eleventh hour was that Putin backed out of something implied some ag- implied agreement and that left them yeah I don't really, left their cards blank I don't really buy that because no. it, I think it's more probable uh, that what we're dealing with here was effectively a naivety and an immaturity on the part of Syriza government uh, you know officials um, because I don't think that the Russian government <clears throat> certainly would have given them any hard and fast signed agreements that it would then suddenly back out of at the at the worst possible time. I don't think that's the way Russia uh, plays the game. I think it's more like that there was uh, maybe a misreading by the Syriza government of what was possible and also a misreading of the ruthlessness of uh, the people they were dealing with in that the, you know, the uh, Cyprus and co thought that the threat of Greece leaving, even the implied threat or the potential threat of Syriza or of Greece leaving the EU 
would be enough to force them to back down and get the kind of deal they wanted, you know, that they were playing hardball. But unfortunately, unfortunately, they weren't uh, a match for uh, the people in the EU who are willing to play even harder ball, basically. Uh, and then they, they, they knew their, they knew the plot or the scheme or the, the plans of Syriza. They knew what they were up to and they weren't buying it. Uh, to a certain extent, like you said, they called their bluff. Um, I think that's the most likely explanation because, like we said, I mean, these people are saying that uh, Russia offered <clears throat> Greece 10 billion, or Greece asked, Syriza government asked Russia for 10 billion dollars to support it while it got back on its feet and uh, uh, transitioned to the drachma, blah, 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 blah. Um, but this was carried by Zero Hedge. Now, we found the original source of this claim, yeah. and uh, one of our Greek editors translated it from a Greek article. Um, there's no such statement from anyone representing Syriza. There's the no Greek clear government. statement. What there is, in there's that, an inferral on the part <clears throat> of the journalist right. that this was the kind of money that was needed. Uh, yeah. And that there had been some arrangement with right. Russia. So he's kind of making it up, essentially. Basically, he's trying to fill in the blanks or read between the lines, but there's no clear statement from Russia or Like evidence. all of us, filling in the blanks. Yeah, there's no clear statement that, uh, or evidence that Russia was actually going to come and save Greece and go all in to save Greece and risk all of the things that Russia would be risking by doing that, risking the ire of the EU and, and its friend and its masters in, in the US. Uh, I, don't, I think that's not in keeping with the kind of strategy that the Russians have employed these past uh, several years. It's a much more cautious approach and a much more measured approach and, a, and an approach that involves them understanding as many of the implications and uh, possible outcomes uh, as, as 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 they can, and they're, they seem to be very good at doing that. In this ar- article that we're talking about, that was in a Greek newspaper that implied that Russia w- had promised ten billion dollars and then backed out on it. As we said, there's no evidence for that in the actual article itself. It's just a, a suggestion. Uh, what there is, though, uh, is a reference to the idea that the Syriza government was trying to use the threat of them turning to Russia and siding with Russia and dropping the EU as a way to get better conditions, the best possible terms on the next bailout from the EU. Uh, I think that's very likely and I think that in itself uh, is, would be evidence or would be reason enough for the Russian government to say, well, that doesn't sound very useful to us. We're not be, we don't want to be played in this way. Uh, what what the Syriza government or certain elements in the Syriza government was trying to do was very foolish. Was to as a small player, effectively a naive uh, small player, young government was trying to uh, use the threat of uh, Russia as a big player against the EU as another big player. And uh, and then take the take the benefits from that. Uh, that's not a good deal. Obviously, the EU would be very indignant about little Greece trying to threaten it, and obviously they were very indignant about punish Greece very harshly for that. And that's where it gets into ideology and vengeance more than any kind of actual economic or uh, uh, considerations. 
But also Russia, that puts Russia in a very bad position. Russia gets nothing out of it. Russia simply gets used as a threat, which puts it in the bad book, further in the bad books of the EU and sours relationships with, with between Russia and the EU uh, by making it look like Russia was going to Greece against the EU. But then in the end, it doesn't. So Russia gets nothing. It doesn't get any kind of agreement or any deal with uh, Greece. It's, it gets nothing out of it, except uh, used by Greece to make uh, to make Russia look bad so that Greece can get a better deal from the EU. I can see why the Russians would just walk away from that. Not even walk away from it, but they would never have committed to anything if there was any suggestion that was what was going to happen. The Russians would have said, listen, let's just keep this all very straight up and on the level. We would like to build a pipeline through Greece. Uh, it'll be very good for Greece's economy, for getting transit uh, fees and all that kind of stuff, and it'll help your economy. We're willing to help your economy in the normal way that we help anybody's economy. But we're not prepared to come in here like a white knight and save you and suffer the horrible com- consequences of of being demonized by the rest of the world and at the same time be lumbered effectively with uh, dealing with the Greek economy mm-hmm. uh, while uh, at, a, at a point where the, where the Greeks would have been uh, made a, an international outcast, basically, you know, from the international community because of particularly by the EU would have turned on Greece and Greece has a drachma, but they would have put a lot of... Um, made Greece suffer a lot if Greece left the EU and, and went its own way, especially if it aligned with with uh, Russia. And Russia would look like a bad guy, would be demonized again in the rest of the world, and it would also be effectively responsible for saving the Greek economy. That's like, a, I mean, nobody in their right mind, uh, much less the Russian government, would ever consider such a, such a possibility. So I think there's a lot of naivety here on the part of the Syriza party and they themselves weren't being upfront and honest, but at the same time, I can understand why they're not upfront and honest because nobody in that game is upfront and honest. You know what I mean? Ex- with the exception maybe of Russia, because Russia, if anybody's being halfway honest about what it wants to do, it's the Russians. All the other players in the EU and the US, they're just—I mean—you cannot believe one word comes out of their mouths. Okay, so what we've done here, you have discarded the specific claim that there was a specific amount asked from Russia specifically to help them set up a drachma post-referendum. And, and that on the, on the night itself, Putin had made it clear in person, personally, whatever that meant, a phone call to Cyprus and Syriza, that no, it was not going to happen. That, that, Discarding that specific story, you've still, you've still painted the same dynamic. Yeah. Namely that Syriza went, oh God, and they hadn't been able to play some hand that would have set Russia against the EU. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, they realized they were going to have to just suck it up. The austerity measures, right? We had new Cyprus, bailout, etc. Well, we had Cyprus going to uh, on several occasions throughout this process of the right. months, going to meet Putin and all this kind of stuff. It's kind of like a childish uh, display of look at me, I'm over here. I'm over here. Aren't you afraid? Guess who I'm talking to? I'm going to Putin. Hello, is that is that Angela Merkel? Hi, Angela. Sorry, I can't take your call right now. I have to go and talk to Putin. You know who Putin is? Yeah, me and him are really good friends. So, you know what I'm saying? Just, uh, you know, just for whatever, whatever you think, um, you know, if you want to kind of cut a deal with me, that's okay. But if not, I'll be with Putin. So you can catch <laughs> me at the Kremlin anytime you want. Uh, did I mention I was going to be with Putin? Yeah, I'm going to be talking with Putin quite a lot about all, all sorts of things, you know. You can imagine, I'm sure. So, um, yeah, get back to me on uh, on the whole uh, bailout thing. 
just uh, how you feel on that now, uh, now that I, you know I'm talking to Putin. So, and Putin obviously has not sanctioned any of this, you know, because Putin's just like, okay, what do you want? Do you want to talk about the yeah, pipeline? Putin's interested in the pipeline. In fact, I said that, you know, at the time when Cyprus was, went on those couple of occasions to the Kremlin or to uh, an economic forum, a Russian economic forum, um, there was all sorts of suggestions in the media, what are they talking about? You know, this right in the middle of the Greek crisis and stuff. And the, and the Russian uh, government uh, was quite explicit that, yeah, we discussed the pipeline. Oh yeah, well what else to discuss? Nothing. Discuss the pipeline. So, uh, like that's why I said the Russian government is has been uh, uh, compared to all the rest of them, extremely clear and honest in its in its intentions, and it has been all along. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the the Syriza party was, um, yeah, I think put this down to naivety and just a lack of uh, understanding. Um, of the dynamics and the power plays that were in mm-hmm. process and the the ruthlessness of the people they were dealing with and the Syriza party attempting effectively to punch above its weight and failing. Yeah. Um, For what it's worth, um, the 10 billion rejection on the night of the referendum story was from the Greek newspaper Vima. That is about... June 11th or so, that came out, that broke some three days later from the referendum. But more recently, two days ago, in a kind of parallel story with this similar echoes, but doesn't mention Russia explicitly, in the Financial Times, let's see if we can find it. <clears throat> the headline was, Syriza's covert plot during crisis talks to return to drachma. Uh, sub-headline, arresting the central bank's governor, emptying its vaults, and, oh, it does mention Russia, appealing to Moscow for help. Uh, The story being that uh, there was a, during the tense moments around the referendum, certain members of Theresa were considering a coup. Yeah. I.e., they were considering a coup to get rid of uh, Cyprus and co. and basically try and just go it alone. But that's that's the even more naive even faction. more exactly. I mean, what are they going to do? That's true. They're going to have a, their navy, They're going to have a coup. They're going to have, uh, arrest the governor of the central bank. They're going to reinstitute the drachma, and then they're going to ask Russia for help. Yeah, uh, I mean, <laughs> don't you want to secure the help in advance if you're going to take those extreme measures? You want to have serious backing behind you before you even take one step in that direction of flipping the bird at the EU. You want to have a safe haven to go to immediately and it all well-established and signed on the dotted line and all sorts of assurances before you make any kind of move like that. Because, I mean, really, people don't understand. Just look at the way the EU, these EU central powers, in particular German bankers, etc., and uh, politicians, really turned on Greece and exacted severe and serious revenge. I mean, every it was on all the news. This is a coup, you know, yeah. horrible punishment. This is worse than the Versailles Treaty. This was like serious. This wasn't about politics or economics. This was about pure uh, revenge, you know, personal revenge on punishment. Greece. Right, punishment. So can you can you imagine? Can you imagine what would happen to Greece if it actually went ahead with something like that and decided to say, okay, screw you, you, I'm out of here? Uh, they would be. Uh, like an economic pariah, basically. They would have to scrabble and, and try to look to 
you know, China or Russia or Iran, whoever, who would all kind of go, yeah, well, you know, we can do something, but we can't really help very much. And the EU would just like totally come down on them like a, like a ton of bricks. They would compl- they would do everything in their in, in their in their power to ruin the Greek economy. And the Greek economy has been entirely dependent on the EU and on money from the EU. It's been within that whole debt system of the EU for so long. It's in t- all of its infrastructure, all of its, uh, it, its economic structures are all EU-based very much in, in, you know, in, that, uh, in, in that arena. Yeah. For them just to walk out, it's like walking out into the wilderness, yeah. you know? And it's going to take you years to try and reestablish yourself and reinvent yourself in a new well, format. The, the people on the left, in their naivety, whatever, were arguing the case that, well, just just leave, just leave. And, you know, how bad can the unknown be relative to how bad things are now? They don't know. <laughs> they don't know. They don't know. Exactly. And that's just thinking about it in terms of the normal effects, leaving that kind of an economic union and trying to go it on your own. Uh, but if... I mean, if if they if they are that naive and they didn't consider the fact that even if they left and walked away from the EU, there would still be serious punishment from the EU central powers, then they're they're clueless, you know. I mean, maybe that's why ultimately they decided that uh, when their bluff didn't work, they had to go cap in hand and beg for forgiveness and take what punishment was going to be meted out, because um, they realised that they couldn't just go alone. I mean, after, because of the nature of the relationship and the way it had kind of soured and the lack of trust, um, it would have been looted. Greece just would have been absolutely and completely looted. I mean, in that position where you have no resources, no friends, no money, you have to take the worst possible deeds. And you don't think that a bunch of, all of the the vultures uh, in hedge funds and investment uh, banks, etc. around the world wouldn't have just come in there and really literally looted Greece to the last, to the last stone of the Greece turned to one friend since independent, officially not with any of the blocs. They signed a military deal with Israel yeah. five days ago. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. In which they, you know, closer cooperation, future military drills between our... Uh, inviting, biggest, inviting Israeli military experts to come and advise us on security. Uh, it's one of the biggest vultures of them all. And you notice when it happened, right when Greece was weakest, you know? Yeah. It was done via the NL, the independent uh-huh. right-wingers, the nationalists within the Syriza yeah. government. Yeah, but the Israelis saw an opportunity and they went for it. I mean, Israelis are always looking for footholds in Western nations to expand their already considerable influence. So, and they go, obviously they pick a time when Greece is at its weakest, you know? So, I'm not surprised. So, that's, um, that's the bad news in terms of, we could, I think I think a lot of the hope behind Greece is closing up to Russia was that there would be this, it would, it was coming to a head where Russia would come in and save Greece. Mm-hmm. Russia is far smarter than that, you know. They understand the game that is played and they understand their own limitations. And Russia always works within its limitations. It never pushes it beyond that because once you push it beyond that, you are, um, you're exposed. And the last thing the Russian government seems to want to ever do is create a situation where it can be exposed because it knows what a ruthless world this is and that as soon as you're exposed, you will be attacked. This is what I don't like about um, a lot of people. I don't know who these people are. They're just people, right? They're (laughs) out there and they're people. 
I'll give you one name. It's that Saker dude. The Saker. The Saker, who apparently a lot of people like, but I don't really like him because I don't think he understands the situation very well. And most people don't understand the situation very well. But he's the one who last year, for example, was doing the same thing that people have been doing recently over the Greek, Greek crisis. Uh, last year in Ukraine, he was ranting and raving about, he was even using the word that the, that the Russians had betrayed Eastern Ukrainians mm-hmm. by not invading. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now people are saying Russia has betrayed the Greek people by not rushing in with an economic invasion to save the day. And this is such a childish view of the way things are. I mean, these are people who think that the world works <clears throat> based on good guys and bad guys. Now that they've identified Russia as a good guy, he's the guy, he's the cowboy dressed in white with the white hat and America and co are the, the black hats. And he just, those people want to see a duel, you know, where it's like they line, they square up at high noon and, you know, the white guy always wins and it rides off into the sunset and everybody's happy, you know. Um, that's a, obviously that's a, a naive and childish way to look at the world. It doesn't work like that. Uh, this world has been dominated and controlled by the Anglo-American Empire, whatever you want to call it, for hundreds or hundreds of years. And they, their influence and their control extends over most of the globe. Uh, those people like that Sager guy and others who want Russia to come in and uh, save everybody, uh, just riding in, and, um, and they get annoyed at them. Uh, when they don't, um, they don't understand. Yeah, they the, made strategic mistakes, then they list off the mistakes, right. which according to them are mistakes. Mm-hmm. But they don't understand. They don't, <laughs> I'm just glad people like that aren't in control of Russia, for example, mm-hmm. um, because the Russian government obviously understands the nature of the world in which they live, and they understand very clearly the the forces uh, that they are up against and the type of people that they have to work against. And they, and like I said, they understand their own limitations and they work within their own limitations. And what they're trying to do by that is ensure that Russia can continue to play the part of the good guy. But these people like the Saker and other people who have this naive, childish view of it, they would have Russia run in. And without even thinking about the implications of having Russia run in and do this, uh, they, they, they don't, they don't um, realize that... Russia would, that would be a fatal flaw by the Russian government and that would be the end of Russia and uh, the hero that they see Russia as would be gone, you know. Uh, so Russia in taking uh, these strategic and sensible uh, and judicious uh, moves and following that kind of a strategy is ensuring that it can, can continue to fight the good fight and so that it can still be there for people like the Saker to worship as the good guy. If the Saker was in control, he would run Russia into the ground in a second. He would he would offer Russia up to the, the, the black hats on a platter. Because with, the, with the best of intentions. With the, well, I mean, pay, pay, you know, the road to hell. Yeah. And that's why uh, people like that, <laughs> I think people like him and people like with that mindset have uh, actually uh, been in positions of power, some relative power over the course of human history. And they've always screwed it up massively. Yeah. You know, yeah it takes it a very, very rare person to be able to stand against the forces of darkness of this world and hold your ground. And it takes... And um, people around you clamoring for... For war. In this case. For, well, for you to run in and yeah. beat up the bad guy. 
I mean, dude, just if if that's what you think, just it's, stop talking about it because you're not really helping anybody, and I mean, it doesn't do any harm, but it's just annoying to me how short-sighted these people are, and how how little they really understand the situation. <clears throat> and the main thing here is it's not it's not rocket science. All you have to do in any situation that you want to try and figure out in terms of what Russia's doing or what you know what what's motivating them and why they are doing this or why they aren't doing this is put yourself in the position of, like, say, Vladimir Putin, and sit and think for a while. If you have some understanding of the way the world works, think for a while about how you would approach a certain problem, like the Greek problem or the Ukraine problem. And think about it long and hard, because there's many things to consider. And then tell me that it's just a black and white. Run in and save them all, you dumbass. Why aren't you doing that? I hate you. You're not my hero anymore. You know, friends like that. Well, it's one thing for people, you know, relatively unknown people in, in the alternative media to say things like that. But there's even the case of Paul Craig Roberts, who's actually served in the U.S. government. He understands the complexities of administration practically calling for war between the U.S., and Russia, and mm-hmm. it, they better get it on for fast, or or we're all we're all going to die. It's it's a strange paradox. We're all going to die unless there's a war, but the, mm. not war they're talking about would be the end of it. Uh, so that's another example. But then there was, it comes out in different flavors. Even the ex- very experienced analyst called William Engdahl, is part German, part American. I think he's based in Germany, and oh, he's written some fantastic stuff for decades. And recently he suggested that Varoufakis was a Trojan horse within mm. the Greek government mm. simply because of a you know, generally pro-European stance. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you listen to the man and see what he tried to do, it's clear. I mean, he was explicitly saying so four years ago when he was still an academic. The key to transforming Europe is to get in there and force the change from the inside, so to speak. Which is probably in the proposition in itself, but he gave it a damn good shot and then he withdrew. Of course. I mean, but how does it make him a Trojan horse? It doesn't, you know, and the thing is, I think what people like that don't, I can understand why they get frustrated, like Engdahl and different people, they get frustrated because they have looked into the situation, or at least they've seen the nature of the beast, and and it's been there so long, and it's been causing so much suffering and destruction around the world for so long, you can understand why they would love to just see someone come in and knock the bad guy out type thing, you know, and be done with it. But, you know, that's not how you change a situation given uh, or, or when the the bad guy, I'm using these simplistic terms, when the bad guy has such power and influence, you don't just run in there and punch him in the face and expect him to walk, fall down and walk away. Those people aren't unseated so easily when they've been sitting on that throne for so long. And in a lot of cases, you have to realize and accept the fact that, uh, well, there's nothing I can do here. You choose your battles, you know. You chip away at it. You don't just go in and unseat it because it, it's not to be unseated in that way. These, the forces uh, in in power uh, in the world in this in this way are they're extremely formidable, and um, you don't just you don't just kick them out with all the best will in the world, <clears throat> you know. And, and reality, that's not enough. Reality is extremely complex in general. Um, there are, there have been some voices. I'm thinking of Pepe Escobar, who 
briefly mentioned, I don't think he spelled out his point in, in an article yet, but um, he looked at it and said, oh, oh, that was a brilliant move by Putin. Brilliant. Because what it's done, it has effectively said to Merkel, look, I just saved the Eurozone for you and endear them closer. The, I, it, the suggestion being that this was a deliberate, consciously thought out. I think move or non-move on Putin's part. I think these are people are looking all the time to put a positive spin on it and trying yeah. to find uh, evidence of Putin's superior strategy all the time. Putin and his and his advisors do have a good uh, intelligence strategy that is capable of holding their own. But I mean, you can take that too far and see uh, want to see evidence intention of, behind everything. Yeah, and want to see evidence of of the Russian government, you know, finally getting closer and closer to a complete. Uh, coup and the unseating of the of the emperor type thing, um, but in this case, based on what we've said, uh, I don't think that was a strategy of Putin. Putin was pretty upfront about what he was doing all along, which was he realised that it's no there's no interest for Russia. It's not in Russia's interest to get involved in any significant way with this Greek crisis. It can't help. If it tried to help, it would be. Uh, abused for it, it would suffer for would any attempt to help. For breaking up the Euros. Right. Well, EU or even any, any attempt to help, even though it was just, you know, whatever help he offered. So he said he kept it to the stuff that Europe understands, which is, Russia is all about gas pipelines. We want to put a gas pipeline through Greece so we can give our gas to, to, the, to the EU. Uh, and that's, nobody's going to argue with him over that. Nobody's going to complain at him over that. And I don't think, based on the way the Europeans have been viewing Russia over the past year or two uh, at the at the insistence of their masters in Washington. Uh, I don't think the European head honchos are inclined in any way to give any credit to Russia for anything. Uh, so they're not thankful that Russia saved the EU because Russia didn't do exactly. anything towards the EU or against the EU. It's simply trying to assert its rights in a reasonable way. Exactly. It's hard to see how Russia has earned leverage there over Merkel, over the EU, can you by imagine, saving it. Can you imagine what it would take for the EU to think positively about Russia at all? I mean, at least the powers that be. I mean, it's not going to happen. I mean, they've, they've gone uh, above and beyond the call of duty uh, yeah. as dictated by Washington uh, to criticize, demonize, and slander Russia. Uh, so they're not about to turn around and say, yeah, well, you know, good job, Russia. Thanks a million. We owe you one. Uh, yeah. Really? <laughs> Look at history. Thanks for, thanks on the Europeans' part for Russia's yeah. role in destroying the Nazis. Exactly. Lasted about a decade. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> or this. well, earlier this year, they, they boycotted the the 70th anniversary uh, celebrations of the of the victory over Nazism in Russia. Didn't even go. I mean, that's thanks. Shall we move on? Yep. To our next topic. Uh, I want to touch briefly on the Iran nuclear deal in mm. quotes. We've already discussed it briefly, mm. but I'd like to just go back over this again because once again, I note that the word nuclear is now non-existent in all news coverage about this. Mm. It was about sanctions, economics, resources, oil, gas. Mm. Like, it always was about nu- that. Well, exactly, because nuclear was a way to uh, keep the sanctions in place. 
You hear rationale for sanctions, right? Right. Sanctioning Russia because it shot down M817. That's why they that's why they're sanctioning Russia. Half okay. sanctioning Russia, right? So you need a, you need a, an emotional uh, causes causes san- causes belly causes sanctioni, <laughs> and they fabricate them. Uh, they case, fabricated an M817 for Russia. They fabricated it in Iran with the Iran's going to get Iran's going to get a nuke and, and then gonna blow, blow Israel exactly. Okay, the kingdom bomb. So it was to keep the sanctions in place, and the reasons they want to keep the sanctions in place is to have wanted to keep the sanctions in place is was to uh, uh, keep Iran and its resources and wealth uh, contained and keep them from becoming a player in the Middle East. Uh, which will have all sorts of implications, and also um, keep them from, you know, to some extent aligning with Russia and China. They basically want to keep Iran from selling its resources, of which it has many considerable resources, particularly oil and gas. They wanted to put a cap on that to stop the development of Iran and it establishing trade links, etc., and becoming a fairly major world power, which it would be. Mm. Not just because it's a fairly big country, it's about the same size as, uh, or bigger, much bigger than Germany, but about the same population as Germany. But because, particularly because it has the, I think it's the third biggest um, proven oil reserves, oil, oil reserves, and it and has gas. fourth biggest gas right. reserves. So that makes it a major player uh, in the, in the Middle East and therefore in the world in terms of in terms of energy resources, because that's okay. what it's all about. That's what uh, controls the world. You know, I mean the Saudis. The Saudis' domination of the oil supply to the world, they produce 40% of, or have produced for many, many years, uh, 40% of the oil's reserve. That effectively made them the kind of central oil banker of the world. They, the Saudis had immense power. The oil spivot. Exactly. I mean, I mean, that gives them, gave them immense power. But of course, they have been, for a long, long time, for many decades, uh, almost completely under the thumb or in, in very close agreement and alliance with America, mm-hmm. which gave America all of that power, largely. So um, this is about stuff going on in the Middle East with Iran, etc., and these sanctions is about. Um, well, the key to that, the, world. the key to that arrangement between Washington, London, and Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, was that it, they would recycle the vast profits they get from being the world's oil spigot mm-hmm. back into. London and, and Wall yeah. Street, the banks per dollar, right? Mm-hmm. So what happens here? Are they, are they, were they trying to ensure a situation where Iran would follow like pattern once its resources were also being exploited? Yeah, they figured that it was time to uh, to open the door on the on, on Iran effectively and make sure that they oh, yeah, walked into a Western um, into the arms of the West, but. It's, uh, it's open season. I mean, the Iranians are themselves offering state assets, mm. according to Reuters today, to foreigners in major investment drive. Yeah. That brings them back into the world economic community. Essentially, right. I mean, Iran has been very much closed. That's what sanctions have been about. Nobody has been allowed to go and uh, invest in Iran. The Western companies have really been allowed to invest in Iran to any great extent. And um, Iran is now offering, like, just joining, joining effectively the capitalist, if you want to call that system, where it, uh, it generates massive amounts of, of, of income, of dollars, um, uh, by, by selling off its resources to companies that can come. I mean, Iran has a lot of unexploited oil wells, 
uh, as well, and mm-hmm. gas reserves, and it wants to generate as much money as possible f- uh, from that. And it also, so to do that, I mean, it's got Asia and stuff, China, it sells oil, to, a lot of oil to China, but the EU is the other big, big market for Iranian oil. Uh, so the US, having always wanted to keep control of the EU and Europe, uh, it, the, U, the US's interest or the way that it keeps control of Europe is through its, its keeping Europe's allegiance to, to the US. And But the problem is that whoever any, a, a country that consumes a lot of oil and gas, who does it consume, that, that consumes a lot and needs to purchase it from outside? Mm-hmm. The country that it purchases it from, that country immediately obtains or gains a lot of leverage over the country that it supplies to mm-hmm. uh, in a mutually a beneficial yeah. agreement there, you know. So Iran, having all these resources uh, and being relatively close to uh, the EU, I mean, it's got a border with Turkey, you go through Turkey and, and you're into uh, you're into Bulgaria and Greece, you know. Uh, Iran could, uh, Iran could uh, very soon become a major um, exporter or supplier of gas in particular to the EU and suddenly then the EU and Iran have quite a close uh, friendship and association let's say going on there and so but the question then becomes who is Iran aligned with Iran needs to be aligned with Washington so that Washington can keep the EU on side you know okay 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 Uh, but the other thing is that this is about gas because gas has been has come online effectively in the past, particularly in the past 10 or 15 years, as the new kind of uh, clean, quote-unquote, resource, energy resource for the 21st century. It's far more about gas now and will become increasingly more and more about gas supplies as the fuel for Western industry and Western life, basically, than oil, you know. Saudi Arabia, for example, is predicted to become, because of the gradual depletion of its long-standing oil wells, it's predicted to become a net gas importer by 2030, in the next 15 years. Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia has increasingly begun to consume more and more of its own oil as its population grew and it's starting to use it for electricity generation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's starting to use more and more, Saudi Arabia is starting to use more and more of its own, uh, its own oil uh, and it's also... That's what happens when you become modern first world. Right. It's now using 25% up from almost nothing 20, 30 years ago, you know. Uh, and that's going to continue to grow. And soon with the decline in Saudi oil production and the increase in its own consumption, Saudi Arabia is going to be out of the picture in terms of this major supplier. So who's next? How, so who do we look to? You know, because this is how we control the global economy effect, effectively mm. is, is through the, the control of this natural resource oil and gas that people need to run their countries. So who do we look to next? And not only that, but oil is being pushed on the back burner, so to speak, and gas is coming online. Now, where's all the gas? Okay, who's got the gas? Well, Russia has already uh, got its, uh, got jumped to the front, the front of the line, basically, in that one, because it's, it, it got in first. Not first, but it, it the Russians saw this happening. Uh, it wasn't a secret. And they started to really ramp up their gas uh, production 
and getting first by shipping it to as many countries will take it, you know, and this is including the EU in the 90s. Right, and the big one is the EU, and that's, so, you know, even back in the 90s, the US government saw this, saw this happening, and was, and since then has been attempting, we know that in the 90s they attempted to basically destroy Russia, with a view probably to dividing it up or installing some kind of client regime there, and that didn't work, so uh, come 9-11, it's like, okay, we can't really control the world anymore based on our projections of what's going to happen. We need to be all around the world militarily. They went for the military option. Uh, they decided on the military option before 9-11. Uh, and that's what 9-11 was for, to provide the justification for the military option, which was essentially not. Well, they have gone around, bombed the crap out of places and destroyed and killed millions of people. But that was to send out the troops because... Uh, our kind of passive control, in a certain sense, our control from afar is no longer possible um, because of a resurgent Russia and because of the changing dynamics and the cha- changing uh, uh, structure of 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 energy resources and what the world uses to fuel itself. You know, the whole game began to change very quickly there. And um, it is curious that 9/11 happened some 18 months after Putin came to power. Yeah. Um, I just want to clarify something you said before. You're suggesting that Washington is a reluctant um, signer to this deal with Iran because it's essentially placating the EU in this matter. And it sees a sense in it, namely, oh shit, Europe's dependent on the Russians. They right. can't get too close. Right. Let's give them Iran. We need, to, we need to be friends with Iran. But here's the span of the work, surely. Iran is on the world island. It's Eurasian. It's yeah. going to be doing its well, deals. Is, that, is it even going to be doing its deals in dollars? Well, is that, well that's what they With the Chinese and the Russians? Well, the Americans are fighting that battle, and that's what they like to think. And the fact that Iran is on the world island, it's part of Eurasia, I'd never stop the Americans, you know. The Americans are fighting this losing battle, you know, which mm. is this massive landmass of, of Eurasia with the vast majority of the population, the vast majority of, of the world's resources. Uh, the U.S. is desperately trying to to control that and stop that from becoming that which it naturally is and should be, which is a single kind of uh, integrated e- integrated economic trading block. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, it's most of the rest of the world. You know, it's it's eighty seventy eighty percent of the world. It's uh, sorry seventy eighty percent of the, of the global population. Most of the resources as well. So yeah, it's a it's a losing battle, and you can see how. Uh, I mean, that fact is borne out or is, is for me, is uh, backed up by the desperation displayed by these kind of Anglo-American empire, we rule the world, or at least we used to, uh, people in, in the policies and the strategies they've taken, they've tried to implement to, to, to keep control of the situation. I mean, they're willing to shoot down, as we've said this before, they're willing to shoot down a passenger airplane with 298 people on it simply to have something, to have a propaganda stick to beat Russia with. That's pretty desperate, you know? Mm. Of course, we can't apply normal human conscience to these people because they don't really have it. So, killing that many civilians isn't such a big problem to them. But still, you know, it's, you know, even by their standards, it's something that, you know, has to be well thought out and planned, etc. But they were absolutely willing to do it 
to try and turn the world against Russia. I mean, that, anybody who understands that that is the truth of the situation, you can immediately begin to understand um, the kind of geopolitical aspect of it in terms of the thinking, the hysterical, desperate thinking behind these old empire types, you know. Um, and it's funny because, you know, when the U.S. wanted to invade or planning or was going to invade Iraq in the lead up to the invasion of Iraq, Donald Rumsfeld criticized France and Germany for not supporting them at the UN to invade Iraq, called them called it old Europe. You know, this is old Europe thinking they're not with it, they're not they're in the modern age here, we just go and create reality as you want it type thing. Well, in a very short period of time since then, you know, twelve years, it's starting to look now like the people who are have the backward old style thinking. Uh, is, uh, are people like Rumsfeld and his uh, co-ideologues, basically the American establishment and the British establishment, who are desperately holding on to this idea of them ruling the world. Well, I'm sorry, you rule the world. And now you're the old empire that are becoming increasingly kind of uh, erratic, irrational, lashing out at anybody who questions your authority and I'm sorry, you can and do that's it. manifesting in in, in the, the police states they have well, yeah. set up, which are most advanced. Oh, God. 
revival ministry, old-time religion. You can imagine what Mr. Charisma thought of that. What do you think the average IQ of this group is, huh? Can you see Texas up there on your high horse? What do you know about these people? Just observation and deduction. See a propensity for obesity, poverty, a yen for fairy tales. Folks putting what few bucks they do have in the little wicker baskets being passed around. I think it's safe to say that nobody here is going to be splitting the atom, Marty. You see that? Your fucking attitude. Not everybody wants to sit alone in an empty room beating off the murder manuals. Some folks enjoy community, the common good. Yeah, well, if the common good's got to make up fairy tales, then it's not good for anybody. Your sorrows pin you to this place. They divide you from what your heart knows. And there are a lot of good hearts out there. I'm looking out there. I'm seeing a lot of good hearts out there. I see a lot of joy out there. I mean, can you imagine if people didn't believe what things they'd get up to? Exact same thing they do now. Just out in the open. Bull shit. It'd be a fucking freak show of murder and debauchery, and you know it. If the only thing keeping a person decent is the expectation of divine reward, then, brother, that person is a piece of shit. And I'd like to get as many of them out in the open. Yeah, so sorry about that, folks. Uh, we don't know what happened at all there. All we heard was this click. Was this kind of click? You know the kind of click you hear whenever uh, somebody's tapping your phone. Although we're not on the phone, but I'm sure there's a way to uh, <laughs> tap radio, ra- internet radio uh, connections. But yeah, it was very strange. We heard it twice, and we couldn't log back in. So we're actually on Skype now. I hope it, hope the uh, connection isn't too bad. But um, I think the NSA guy who was enjoying the show so much just accidentally slipped his elbow. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, uh, hopefully the, the, the connection is too bad. Anyway, we're just saying there that, um, the last thing we we're saying was that, you know, it's this desperate flailing around by, uh, the old empire, the U.S. Anglo-American kind of empire that has ruled the world for such a long time. What we're seeing these days is the desperate, uh, flailing, uh, out in anger and frustration, uh, at the fact that they no longer can so easily, let's say, control the world and exert their influence. And they're willing to get nasty and um, violent to try and claw back what they're losing. And it's sad, pathetic, but, you know. Yeah, and it's creating grotesquely obvious to those who can see uh, instances where... What I was going to mention was the example of this bombing in Turkey mm. a few days ago, three, three, four days ago. So it was a rally for socialist youth, men, predominantly, I think it's a Kurdish PKK affiliate, Kurdish party youth members having a picnic somewhere in the south of Turkey. Bomb goes off, 27 people killed, and the Turkish government says ISIS done it. Mm-hmm. Within hours, they have jets up in the air. Joining the coalition against ISIS, it was, you know, it was a twofer. Two for one, you know. Two birds, one stone type thing. They get to terrify and massacre a bunch of uh, Turks who are 
complaining about corruption in Turkey and want social justice, etc. Uh, so they silence those people in the most gruesome way. And then at the same time, they get to blame it on the, everyone's favorite boogeyman, ISIS, uh, even though it was probably some element of the, of the Turkish government. Um, they get to blame ISIS and use that to justify uh, bombing Assad, but also right now, as under under the under the excuse of bombing bombing ISIS, i.e. Assad, they've also been bombing the Kurds, Kurdish positions who are fighting against uh, Assad. Fighting against no, against ISIS. Against ISIS, <laughs> right? It's absolutely insane. The whole thing is absolutely ridiculous, and it just speaks to what we've been saying: is these people are nuts. They're insane. They're just. I mean, they've lost the plot. But we should always remember as well is that even though we're talking about this in terms of what's going on at the high level of governments and all kind of stuff, Russia versus the U.S. versus the EU, they're all fighting and stuff. What this is, what's really behind all of this, there's another agenda and a far more important agenda. And it's the control of, and this is what it's always been about, it's the control of the ordinary people of this planet and keeping them down and in relative poverty or ignorance. That's the main agenda behind all of this. All of this stuff going on where these power brokers, most of them are doing it uh, you know, uh, from an instinctive kind of basis. Uh, the, the, the knock-on result is that people are made to suffer, people are squeezed mercilessly, uh, uh, civil rights, etc. are stripped away, all for the purpose of, in, in these power brokers' minds, to, to maintain their hold on power. Of course, their hold on power is it's ridiculous because, uh, you know, they're not going to have be in power or maintain that hold on power for, forever, but they want it for as long as they possibly can. It's extremely irrational from an ordinary human perspective, but this is what they're doing. But through them, certain higher forces are achieving their agenda which is really a war on humanity or a, a drive to suppress the evolution or the creative potential of ordinary human beings who left, their own, left to their own devices would live in a relatively peaceful world that was pleasant for most people uh, to live in. And that's, the, that's what they want to suppress mm. because once people are given the freedom to express their own God-given creativity, well, you don't have control over it or them anymore. It will go where they, where the natural creative forces in them want it to go, which is towards ever more creativity and expansion, etc. And the forces uh, control this world want to lock it down and to keep human beings, all of them, as many as possible, as their, essentially as their food source in a very direct way, obviously, because the fat cats and the, the well-fed, the multi-billion trillionaires, whatever, they're only that way. They're only in that position as a result of the efforts and labors of ordinary people, the 8 billion ordinary people on this planet. Mm. So we are their resource. And we can talk about oil and gas all we want, but the most important resource on this planet is human energy. Yeah. That's the common denominator in all these crises. Uh, lockdown. Just look at the results. Lock it all down. And this manifests back home in quotes in the West, in such things as the ongoing Operation Jade Helm. Yeah. Well, I mean, just before we get into that, that's, I mean, you know, there's always a narrative, you know. People 
who down the line will find themselves in a kind of police state, uh, in police state conditions, living under a police state where they're locked down, where there's curfews, where they're arbitrarily arrested or shot or beaten or whatever, they'll look back on this and say that the narrative for them will be, well, yeah, it's a terrible situation that we're in. The country's really gone to hell. It's a kind of slave nation or whatever, a police state now. But um, I can see that the reason that it happened was that our leaders were simply trying to protect us from that threat. You know? Yeah. Which is absolutely ridiculous, you know? Um, but that's, that'll be the, the way a lot of people will rationalize it to themselves. No one will ever admit that the, the end result is the goal. Whatever conditions people find themselves in this planet in 10 years' time, that's not by accident. It didn't happen by some uh, strange turn of events that was, oh, we've just got really bad luck here, you know? If, if that is the end result, then you can bet your ass that that is what was planned all along by someone at least, you know? Or something. Or something. And this is why the uh, whole, uh, these coincidence theorists who I hate, I really don't like conspiracy theorists because they're completely crazy. But I'll tell you who's far, far crazier is the coincidence theorists, you know? You probably know a lot of them. You know, you hear, you see them in, like, the media and just in the street, the average person, maybe it's a family member. And the, the weird thing is they're so stupid that they don't even know that they're coincidence theorists. I mean, they, all of their speech and all of their thought process that they are so good to reveal to other people and explain to other people reveals that they are die-hard coincidence theorists. And a coincidence theorist is someone who uh, thinks that everything happens either by coincidence or sometimes there's a variation of them called uh, uh, incompetence theorists, where everything that happens in the world uh, all happens either by just coincidence. Uh, and most of, most of the stuff that happens in the world today is pretty bad, has negative results, but that's all a coincidence. Nobody plans that. It just keeps going wrong for some reason, you know. Uh, and all of the rich people largely are, 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 are rich by, by coincidence or all of the wars that happen uh, are all by coincidence or sometimes by incompetence, you know? It was a quagmire mistake. Right. We shouldn't have done this. Right. Oops. It was all oops. We shouldn't have done that. But, oh, well, the results are really good for us who, whose agenda is to keep things, to keep ourselves in power and expand control and influence around the world as much as possible. That's our agenda. Um, and our mistakes just happen to lead. Or the coincidence, our mistakes just happen to lead, or our coincidence—the coincidence that we were lucky enough to have befall us, or find ourselves in—just happened to lead to the fulfillment of our stated, our well, stated or unstated agenda. So it's a big coincidence, you know. I mean, the fact that pre-9/11, here's one example you can get. You can, I can give you many, many more examples of this, but 9/11 is a big, big one, and it kind of stands out. Is that before 9/11, the U.S. Uh, government, in the form of uh, PNAC, the Project for a New American Century, and other kind of uh, think tankers in the U.S. policymakers, they had uh, they wrote clearly in a public document, a public policy do document, that uh, the, the U.S. government, uh, the U.S. country and government, uh, could only survive and thrive into the 21st century if there was some kind of a, like they described with a new Pearl Harbor. Uh, that would allow for them to expand the U.S. military, to project their power, their military power, out around the world and to gain experience in military activities and to grow their military out around the world and to project their power in this way, uh, uh, if there was something like that that facilitated that. 
uh, at like a new Pearl Harbor. So they said this before 1998, I think it was, or 96. Within four or five years, um, 9-11 comes along. Now that's an example of the coincidence theory. It's a really big coincidence. Mm. But uh, 9-11 came along and provided them with exactly what they wanted by coincidence. Here you can't say incompetence, although part of 9-11 was incompetence, but incompetence fed into the 9-11 attacks, like the U.S. didn't, didn't see it coming and oh bugger, but well, you know, now that it's happened, it just so happens that this gives us exactly what we wanted, what we wrote about five years ago. Uh, so these are kind of, uh, this is an example of, of the, the ideas or the theories, the bizarre outlandish the theories that these coincidence theorists ascribe to. You know, it's so, you know, nothing, you know, calculated or planned ever happens in the world. It just, all the stuff happens just by coincidence and the powers that be on this planet, uh, the people in control of the world, uh, just maintain their control by a series of unfortunate or rather fortunate coincidences. Uh, yeah, I mean, when I hear that kind of stuff, I just go, I've never heard anything more ridiculous in my life, anything more naive or obtuse in terms of just take just take a look at the world around you and look at the way things happen and look at even human nature and stuff and you can see clearly that that is a ridiculous contention. But they go around promoting it all over the place, you know, it's ridiculous. Can people still hear us? Somebody say yes. Everybody say yeah. Stupid blog talk video. Are we off? Okay, no. No. Okay, people are saying yes. Everybody say yeah. I got to complain about blog talk radio. Um, So yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, don't don't remember the, uh, or don't forget the... um, don't forget to be to, to watch out for the blog talk or for the uh, for, watch out for blog talk radio, but also watch out for um, those coincidence theorists and their crazy loony ideas. You know, you don't have to go far to find one. No, you hear it all over the place. You know, <laughs> what's the flip side of this is that they will tell you you're a conspiracy theorist with the assu- implied assumption that you it's all a conspiracy for you. What? But it's, it's obviously more nuanced than that. What's all a conspiracy? In the sense that everything to them to the last, not necessarily to the last detail, but each of the major steps even were done with a view to producing this precise scenario. As in there were people with enough power and foresight to think 15 years away exactly what would be needed to get us there. Well, not not 15 years, but within a few years, yeah. I mean, government, I mean corporations and governments have, have policies and have plans, you know, that they, they say, okay, yeah. we're... we're I mean, has your dad never asked you where you want to be in five years? Uh, That's a very common father question, you know, for uh, a young man. Where do you you see yourself in five years? I mean, is he a conspiracy theorist? (laughs) Okay. What I'm getting at is, um, you see, people, the coincidence theorists have themselves plenty of evidence to demonstrate the incompetence of leaders, mm. so it's no, but that, that doesn't that doesn't really work because they're they're part of the problem here is that they believe what the what the politicians or leaders say. Of course, it's, nobody would disagree. Even coincidence theorists wouldn't wouldn't uh, disagree with the fact that politicians tend to lie. 
So they can only ascribe in competence if they believe what they themselves would say they shouldn't believe, which is politi- what politicians say. If a politician says, I want peace in the world, but then he takes action to create war in the world, well, then you can say, yeah, he's a yeah, incompetent. Like the guy said he wanted peace, and he goes and he does these different things that are pretty obviously going to create war. He's incompetent. But that's only possible. That rationale is only possible if you believe that he tells the truth all the time. And most people would accept that most uh, politicians have a fairly close uh, friendship with porky pies. That they tell lies all the time. Um, so the, the incompetent thing doesn't really work either, you know. Um, yeah, but obviously behind all this, the problem that problem for these kind of constant theorists uh, and why they fall into this ridiculous form of thinking and, and perspective on the world is that they don't allow for the fact that people would be greedy or selfish or think only of themselves. You know, they, they don't allow themselves or don't allow for people in positions of power to be supremely greedy or selfish. Uh, even though they can see that they themselves are selfish, that that's part of human nature, and that they know lots of people in their lives who have been selfish and greedy and have done things at the expense of other people for their own benefit. This is all rudimentary for, for human nature, and people, everybody knows that they know somebody next to them who, who's like that, or a family member who's like that. But, but uh, leaders, people in positions of power, cannot be that way mm-hmm. for some bizarre reason. And that's another aspect of the faulty thinking of these kind of people, you know, where, where their brain doesn't seem to be able to just engage in some fairly basic judicious study of of of, of reality and, and and how things work and how human nature works. I mean, it, it fails them at a certain point. You know, they can recognize it in their friend, but they can't recognize it in a, in, in a leader. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, you know. Those kind of people should not be part of the debate, you know. If you can't show some basic skill at logical, rational, critical thinking, you know, logical deduction, if you can't be consistent in it, if, you, if, you, if you're able to apply it in one scenario but not in another, when there's no reason not to apply it in that other scenario, then there's something wrong with your thinking. So it's certainly no coincidence that um, Americans are hearing all about ISIS and terrorist attacks and terrorist shootings while there's a major... Uh, what are they calling it? War on Terror. War on Terror. No, no, I'm thinking it's Operation Jade Helm, where it's like the largest exercise, joint exercise in military and police mm. in the southwest of the U.S. Yeah, it just so happens. That's a good, another so good example. Uh, like I said, you can find many. If you think about it just for five minutes, you can think, find many, many examples of this crazy coincidence theory thinking. You know, people would say that People would say that um, it's a coincidence that the ISIS terror threat or the Islamic jihadi whatever terror threat uh, just so happens to be have been you know on the agenda and in people's faces for many years now, uh, and that that can be used to justify up uh, military exercises, quote unquote like Jade Helm, that a lot of people would have otherwise have concerns about and would maybe protest about and, and, and take action to kind of put pressure on the political representatives to 
you know, there might be an outcry in the country to um, to stop this kind of, you know, militarization of, of of the country. Normally they would do that, but a lot of people are kind of censor themselves and, and accept those that kind of militarization of the country because of the ISIS terror threat. Especially given that one aspect of the, these exercises right, so has have, the premise that they're they're in uh, hostile territory. Yeah, in the U.S. Yeah, I mean people don't like that. It's very scary for the military to come along and mount the biggest ever military exercise across five or six states and posit that this is actually uh, this is enemy territory. I mean that's gonna a lot of people. I mean, it's why is our military pretending that we're enemies? You know, why are they using us as fake enemies? I don't like it. I'd like that to stop. But okay, I'll allow it because there is the ISIS terror threat, and our military has to defend us here and defend us across the world from this ISIS terror threat. But of course, the military has wanted to do that. The military needs to justify its budget. It needs uh, uh, to engage in this kind of uh, these kind of military exercises to justify its own existence. Um, so. If you track back the existence of the Muslim terror threat uh, and the war and terror that justifies these military exercises that somebody in power wants to happen, uh, you can see that uh, it goes back to 9-11. We just spoke about 9-11 and the, uh, the crazy coincidence theory of 9-11 that all these things just happen by coincidence. But clearly someone has uh, an agenda. There's a pretty uh, transparent uh, or easily discernible agenda of people in power in politics and in the military and when you see things that happen that facilitate the fulfillment of that agenda then you're crazy to call that a coincidence it's far more rational to say that it was planned that way because the, the amount of coincidences just mount up you know the number of coincidences just keep growing and growing and growing to the point where you just go really this is all a coincidence this just happened by accident what kind of world do you live in, you know? Is it, I mean, do you think you live in a world with, of mindless slaves where just everybody just kind of walks around, you know, kind of like with no planning or, uh, you know, no attempt to, you know, create uh, go or achieve goals or create conditions that they want to create, etc. Like this, there's no interaction, no human interaction with the world to create the conditions that we have in this world. That's almost what they're positing, you know? Because that's the foundation of it. Nobody would disagree with that, I think, unless you're completely crazy. You'd say, of course, people interact with the world and create conditions in the world that they want to create. Um, but again, it only goes so far. You're not allowed to ascribe that same kind of uh, um, motivation or that same attitude to people uh, in positions of power, and particularly when the idea is that what they're doing is not such a nice, pleasant thing that it disturbs people. As soon as it's disturbing to the average human being, then it's coincidence. Oh, it's just, uh, that can't really be happening. Uh, there's not, nobody's planning this, obviously. This terrible thing has happened. No one planned that. It just happened by accident, you know. Uh, so they can appeal to God then, you know. Why, God, did you let this happen? And God's like, a long time ago, God was like, I'm out of here, you know. You all are on your own. Well, no, here... I'll leave you Pat Robinson. Yeah. Talk to him. Yeah, he's got the He's my representative. Send him your money. So, anyway, Jade Helm. Today they buried Sandra Bland. Did we, finish, <coughs> did we finish with Jade Helm? I thought we did. <coughs> I thought you were going to give me an inside story on Jade Helm, what's really going on. 
well, what's going on? Well, we covered the basics in terms of major military exercises. Yeah, I mean, if anyone out there is is living in the U.S. Southwest somewhere, have you seen any of these? Apparently, it was going to involve military people going undercover. But undercover. you're not allowed to see them. Well, the challenge put to people when they announced it months ago was, um, if you do think you see one of them doing something, you tell us. Because the idea is that they want to test if they can do this kind of operation incognito. Mm. So uh, that's I, I have no idea what any if there's any results yet, but it's been going it's been going for a week. It's going to go on to September, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's more to come. They're talking a lot about ISIS and stuff, and you know they said recently that um, <laughs> they announced they released a. Uh, a statement from ISIS uh, that they had operatives ready to go into malls or you know public schools, etc. On our orders, you know they had like something like seventy or something across almost every U.S. state, but they itemized about seven or eight of them. A few in the north, north, uh, a few in the south, and stuff that they had ISIS operatives ready to, on their command, go postal. <clears throat> go jihadi postal. Uh, of course, it'd be interesting if that happened, you know, in one of the southern states where Jade Helm was happening, you know. Um, but we suspect that there may not be such a such an obvious linkage of the meta narrative, the war on terror, ISIS is coming to get you, with the on the ground, in your face, um, jackboots everywhere. That something like this exercise, it may finish and end without any event or mm-hmm. incident. But once done, facilitates it happening again mm-hmm. and again until it becomes a norm in the way that active shooter drills are now apparently a, yeah. a regular feature in the school calendar mm-hmm. in the US. Um, that is being done to just get you to go, oh, right, okay, another drill, boring, it's, mm-hmm. it's normal now, it's regular. Such that you then have a structure, an infrastructure, literally in the form of um, army people. Yeah, on your streets. Trained people on the ground, on the streets, in position uh-huh. for any eventuality at any point in time. Yeah. That's how they want to acclimatize Americans to, to, to having that on the streets um, for a future event, maybe, where, you know, they want the acceptance of that, want people to get used to it so that if and when they want to flood. Uh, the whole country with with military personnel and impose some kind of martial law or whatever that people will say, oh yeah, that was like Jade Helm, right? Um, so we have a uh, caller on the line. His name is Onyx from San Diego. Hey, is it Onyx? Is that your name? Yeah, it is. How you doing? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm What's up? I just listen. No. Well, are, are you guys just talking about uh, martial law, and you guys don't really have to worry about martial law in this country? Why not? Uh, because all of the uh, poor people have all the guns. So what you did was, uh, because of the entry uh, pay for all of our armed military and our armed uh, police officers, 
all of the poor people have all the guns. So you can't tell me to go back and, uh, hey, go back into the community and then round up all these people and mistreat them. I mean, are you in the military? Yeah, I'm a Marine. So okay. what I'm going to tell you is that if we did that, you would have to treat those people that we round up better than you treat us. And at the point that you didn't, I would see your order as an unlawful order, and I would shoot you in the head. You you would turn against your military superiors? Yes, we all are going to do that. <laughs> it's not just me. How can you send hmm. me back? I'm just a regular person, just like you and most people, unless you're some Donald Trump type of guy. I'm just mm. a regular person. You're not going to tell me to round you up and treat you bad. You and I are the same. We just do different jobs. My job is I swore hope to protect you and make sure that nobody mistreats you and make sure that you have the freedoms of your life. At the time that somebody tells me to do something contrary to that, then they are against the Constitution, and then I'm mm. going to pop their top. Do you think a lot of uh, people in the military, military men and women, uh, feel the same way? Yes, there's going to be too many of us to to say, right, we're not going to do that. It can't, it can't. What they would have to do is that they would have to take the elitists, and then they would have to take their children and then arm their children, which they don't want their children at harm's way, which means it's the reason why they're not here in the military with us, and then they could be able to be able to do something like that to regular people. But we would never do it. And what if that... Go round what up if, my mother and my kids and, and do this. Yeah. But what if, what I if have, you I don't were, have the resources to put them in some kind of protected place. Mm. Where are you from, Honig? San I'm Diego? I'm from Washington, D.C. Okay. I live in San Diego now. I'm from Washington, D.C. So what if you were somewhere you'd never been before in some state uh, you'd never been before and uh, you were posted there and uh, civilians or whatever started uh, shooting at you? A civilian started shooting at me. Yeah. Why, why would they do that? Well, you know, they've been turned against the military. They they believe that, you know, this is some kind of a, a military takeover to come and take away their guns or something. And they start shooting first. You know, what what a military personnel do in that situation? Does your, your oath no kind way, of protect? There's no, one, there's no one to go collect your guns. There's no way. Mm-hmm. There's no one to do it. The police officers are regular guys, too. They start out, most of them start out at like 20K or maybe 30K nowadays. Your military personnel start off with under under 25K. So we're mm. poor, all poor people. You can't just send me back and go, and we love our guns, too. We're the mm. ones, we're the gun owners. We're the ones with four and five guns. So what are we supposed to turn ours in? No. Oh, we're going to go collect yours. We don't believe in that. None of us believe in it. The police officers don't even believe in it. They got four or five guns at the house too. Hmm. It's just scary stuff. It's not. It's not. Nothing like that is ever going to be able to happen, man. There's nobody to come to get it. Who would? Who would? You know any police officers that's anti-gun? Mm. Well, I know. No. I, I, I know there's lots of police. <laughs> there's lots of police officers who are, are acting pretty harsh against uh, against poor black people. You know. Well, yeah, yeah, and they don't want now that that is that's racist. That's that's something else other than uh, saying something that we would do with the entire country. Now that's just racist. 
That's something mm. different. But I can speak to that, too, if you wanted to. So the government is going to put laws in place to stop uh, black people from owning guns. I mean, I, that's just, you know, what it is. Uh, the white America is always going to be scared uh, that black people will revolt and, and do these different things. Mm. Well, that's, yeah, but that could be a problem, Who right? If, uh, if they go and try and stop people, black people getting guns, and it's uh, it's against the law for black people to have a gun, and then black people go ahead well, and get a gun anyway, uh, that could be well, that, that could turn pretty nasty. Well, the, you know, uh, it's, it's a lot. It's, but some of those things are very complicated. So you would think that the, the way a lot of people got guns uh, should be illegally is illegal gun trade, which starts off with someone legally owning a gun. Mm-hmm. Or the government providing guns. A lot of the guns that are in possession in poor neighborhoods were put there by the government. You know, don't 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 think that the government just accidentally lost the rifles that they sent to the Mexico drug cartel. Mm-hmm. Remember that, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's just no mistake. You can't lose anything. We have global uh, surveillance. You can't lose a truck. You can't lose something. There are too many satellites for that. Yeah, well, exactly. That, that, that speaks <laughs> to what we were saying earlier. You know, yeah. we were we were ragging against coincidence theorists, namely that, oh, everything just as it is, it just happened to end up that way. But how can it in the kind of in the surveillance infrastructure that exists, you know, do you think that they'd have been able to stop some of these things from happening? They'd be able to stop people getting anything they didn't want them to get? So exactly. I mean, well, something that something we've said, you know, we disagree with people who say that there's uh, a mass shooting in the U.S. or a terror attack or a terror plot. A lot of people, right and left, they come out and they say, ah, okay, we can see the hidden hand behind this. And what they're trying to do is create a situation where they take our guns from us. And yet, at each time something like this happens, what happens? People go out and get, get more guns. And there have been no new, well, very little new anti-gun laws on the books. Despite all the hot air and the talk, the reality on the ground is people are armed to the teeth. Yeah. yeah Which is why we say... The, that's why we think the end scenario will be even worse. I mean, we're, we're not actually, we're just going to get onto. We don't think this is leading up to a situation where they try to take the guns, per se. Rather that um, chaos will, in some form, will ensue if there was any kind of attempt by either side, in quotes, to exercise force. And as a result of that chaos, most people, whether they're armed or not, would refrain from violence because most people are not, unlike yourself, trained to be able to cope with it. So they've refrained from it. They would naturally look to order in the chaos. Yeah. And unfortunately, that will be with the same authorities who brought us all into this mess in the first place. Yeah, we're thinking something, Onyx, and something more like an economic collapse or where things really shit really hits the fan and the economy or something and people really start getting hungry, you know, maybe there's not a lot of food around and that kind of stuff, that kind of a chaos well, situation where the government will put 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 the military on the streets to kind of keep order, you know? 
Yeah, but it's, that's not going to work. Uh, but what, what you would see, what I would say, with some type of economic collapse, uh, we have very few super wealthy people that control this country. Mm-hmm. Okay? And if if they allow everything to go into some type of chaos, we would starve and then eat them. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. They don't want to be eaten, so they're not going to allow it to get that bad. Yeah. I suppose in that situation, they're looking to uh, the military and the law enforcement to protect them, you know, protect them from the crazy poor we people. Can't. We can't. We're going to protect them from our family. You got to realize they started us off at 20K and 30K a year. And we're mm. poor. Nobody takes that job when you're rich. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so we can relate to that. So when we put all these people in camps and then it's time to eat, they better be eating good. And they better have a place. And, and we would expect it to be better than what we have ourselves. And if it's mm-hmm. not, then that means that we're violating their constitutional rights. And then that's when we need to take action and do what we sworn to do. Well, I certainly hope there's a lot of people like you who have retained the ability to use your own judgment and not just follow orders blindly, you know, because I suppose they say that's what uh, uh, military training does. It trains uh, men and women to uh, just follow orders no matter what, you know. Well, 18 years later, (laughs) if you try to violate people's civil rights and expect me to help you do it, you could possibly get a shot in the head. It's not, it's not like an option for me to like say, oh, yeah, I'm about to do this. We're going to mistreat these people. Okay, if we need to put them in camps to put them safe, yeah. And we need to give them water and supplies and the best of the things that we have to give them. And if we're not doing that, then we're violating their right to happiness, and we need to go ahead and uh, take control of whatever power is causing mm. Well, I hope so. Let's yeah, not to tell you. Yeah. Sure. And they don't want me to shoot them in the head. <laughs> well, thanks for calling in, Onyx. Uh, right. Good to talk to you. I'll be right, I'll be right here listening. I, I, I want you to get to talking about this Iran thing. I want to hear what you got to say. Iran, we already did talk about yeah. Iran, actually. Oh, in the show. Sorry, Just skip back, right. skip back a little bit. All right, we'll talk to you later. Okay. Have a good day. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Uh, we've got, we're going to go straight to Kent here. Hi, Kent. You've yeah. been waiting. Yeah, I've got a couple of comments about this Jade Helm thing. Well, I, I, uh, uh, I'm a one of the uh, idea that this Jade Helm is uh, preparations for the uh, military occupation of Japan. I mean, China, I mean, the Jade being a, you know, a symbol of China, Helm being controlled. But never mind, I'm aware of all this, you know, this, this relentless talk about taking over America, you know, and troops on the street and all this. Now, we just had this incident where they, um, you know, make of it what you will, the, the validity of it, of this thing where they went in and where they supposedly the recruiters were killed, blah, blah, blah. They were unarmed. And now we have all this, all of a sudden, all these Jade Hummers, all the troops on the blah, blah, all the poor, they weren't armed. So all these governments around the state are passing. Most of these 
these um, recruiters can carry their sidearms, and there's people volunteering uh-huh. to protect these. So it's all a big nonsense, as far as I'm concerned. I think it's, I think it's all about China, and the people that are doing it are just amusing uh, the hell out of themselves by uh, creating all this uh, fury. Now, as far as the question of whether there's an economic collapse, well, there was an economic collapse in this country in the, in the Great Depression. And there was a military uprising. There were guys, there was something called the Bonus Army. These were guys that were veterans of the First World War. They were promised a bonus, you know, I think when they were 55 or whatever, like an annuity. But, you know, hard times came, and they, they weren't 55. And they said, well, how about you just give us our money, you know, because we're starving. So they all came to Washington, you know. All they wanted was the money, like, when they were 50 instead of 55, you know. And uh, they were met very harshly. I mean, they were fired on and chased out of town by the likes of Eisenhower and Patton and so forth. So I don't uh, this, this this stuff about the uprising. You know, of course, Americans have a lot of guns. Guys will have 10, 15, 20 guns. All they'll tell you have 100 guns and a thousand rand. You know, a, you know, a ton of ammunition. Well, he's one man. When he's dead, then that's useless. You know. So mm. I don't. I don't. I think this is all a. Um, pretty much concocted, you know. Um, when all they had to do was tell Americans that the Muslims are coming, or they'll, they'll 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 all be ready to shoot the Muslims and that sort of thing. That's my opinion of it. So you think this is concocted, but with a view to China occupying and some literally occupying the United States? Kent, hi. Is Kent still with us? Uh, yeah, I think so. I can understand his frustration of the chaos of it all, but um, yeah, I, I saw something about this online where the, the jade was code for China, and I think I stopped reading. I'm afraid I didn't give it due diligence, but it's it just seemed too far fetched. I mean, this is this is very much an American, at least it's a secret government concoction, if we're going to look at it that way. Um, no, these are American troops on the streets. Now, I want to go back to sort of address what uh, Onyx was getting at. Um, he makes a good point. Now, he's probably a pretty sharp and alert and aware U.S. Marine. He, From what he said, he sounds like he would, from his peers, be in the minor, uh, majority that there's a consensus among them that they would never accept being asked to do something like turn against fellow citizens. What we're not actually we're not envisaging such a scenario. Um, if you look at the pattern of how we got from there, let's call there pre nine eleven to here, at every step of the way, each new draconian law or uh, action, something that resulted in say the cops in small towns getting massive military vehicles, at each step of the way. It was seamless. You see, there was no, there was nothing so jarring and sudden that would make people go, "Oh, it really should have." There were enough jarring things that people should have taken, should have sat up and take notice. But in the climate of the fear and the terror of the concocted war on terror, people accepted it. But nevertheless, at each stage, it's a relatively seamless transition. The kind of scenario when you say the words martial law, when you say the words take over it 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 sounds like an event that would be in your face can't miss it no mistaking but we suspect that we may need to use different language to describe 
such a transition to a real like totalitarian nightmare. It seems that it's seamless. People would welcome it. Such were the situ such was the situation at the time that it seemed like there was no other option. Like in the small example um Kent just gave where those um those recruiters at the military centers in Tennessee ten days ago shot dead by some random guy. Uh people were up in arms with about the law that's on the books that the military in the US cannot carry their arms. Mm-hmm. For good reason, because for the very reason that Onyx was bringing up, which is that we would never want the situation where they turn on their own people. So it it sounds like a major contradiction there. But what happened? People who, civilians, non-military people of their own accord were so outraged by the fact that the law, the government, the law didn't protect their own military guy. And the military is the most suspected institution in the United States Mm. by far. So they voluntarily loaded themselves up with weapons and went and stood and took turns to do patrols outside military centers up and down the country. Mm-hmm. Of their own volition, they militarized and further brought the whole country down that road to the next step in the seamless transition. Mm-hmm. But, and they did it with the best intentions. Yeah. And they may have hated the government. Or- yeah, they brought exactly. it. They brought the government and all of us closer. It's exactly exact, it's a perfect example of how uh, easily people are can be manipulated and brought around uh, to very often doing something that uh, doing something today that yesterday they argued against, you know, or supporting something today that yesterday they argued against, you know, and it's always as we notice over and over again, it's always uh, achieved through. Um, an emotional trauma of some description. Uh, and that almost invariably involves shooting people, killing people, killing innocent people. But that is the way that they can get people to support, the government can get people to support uh, something that is not in the people's best own best interest. You make them afraid. I mean, it's fairly, it's fairly basic and it takes a pretty strong person to see through that, you know, because... Um, yeah, I mean, when people's emotions are provoked and the fear of death is put into them, you know, kind of collectively, like we've seen in these mass shootings, Sandy Hook, you know, Boston bombings, that kind of thing. Um, all of that is done for a, that specific reason, reason of um, emotional manipulation of the entire population. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if, if you were not Boston strong, yeah, I mean, that was the mantra that came with it. Yeah. You were, I mean, you were fucking devil because yeah. you were anything but. So. It, the people who saw through it said, oh, yeah, yeah, me too. I'm Boston Strong, totally. And here's what I have to say. No, no, no. You're Boston Strong. That's good enough for yeah. us. Just, <laughs> just be quiet. Just now. support and be quiet. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's not fair. I mean, it's not that we criticize people for that. It's a really nasty, evil, manipulative strategy to use, you know, to provoke people in that way, you know. Um, it's very hard, like we said, for people to, to fight against it, you know. Um it's it's horrible to see ordinary Americans being ground down in this way. I mean, you might hear us ragging on about the U.S. government and in passing about Americans in general, all of their ignorance and uh, their support for the evil shit that goes on. But we know that, you know, there's been a mind job seriously messed with. Yeah, there's a mind job done for a long, long time. And in 
in in a way that hasn't really been done on other people to the same extent uh, in other places, you know. Although in a lot of places in Europe, it's it's the same result is achieved using the same tactics. You look at Charlie Hebdo. Uh, that's pretty much that was Boston Strong. Just for Charlie, it was Boston Strong, you know. It's um, as soon as you instill that fear of death in people collectively, you can get them. You've got your posters and your banners and your slogans ready to go, and they'll take them up, you know. Uh, solidarity, and it's all, they're all positive human qualities, but they're being used to serve a pernicious end. Uh, and it's very difficult for people to to step out of that, you know. Uh, but some people can, I think, and in particular people who aren't directly involved in it, you know. People who aren't directly, directly affected by it, it's easier for them. Um and people listening to the show, I think, are the people who, by the very fact that they're listening to the show, uh, it means that they have, a, I suppose, a natural uh, immunity or distaste for that kind of, or, or a, a recognition of that kind of manipulation. Mm-hmm. They recognize it and recognize it for what it is quicker and more easily than the average person who just buys a, buys the narrative, you know. Anyway, uh did we cover all our topics? We did. Well, that means that it's time to lighten the mood a little bit um, with another pop culture roundup. Our reporter at large in Canada with all the inside details on what's been going on in the mad, crazy world of culture, poppy. Well, hello kids, and welcome to another splendorific edition of Pop Culture Roundup, where we'll troll the corporate Skynet in search of all the latest celebrity gossip worthy to dish out in heaping fat-free portions upon the spotless porcelain plates of all you dear listeners. I'm reporting again from my lonely backwood cedar shake roof log cabin on the normally flash-frozen shores of Upper Lake Canada. But today's different, my friends. Today marks the first and probably last day of summer up here in the Great White North. You see, our growing season's a little shorter than most usually happens one afternoon in July from around 1.30 to 5 p.m. You see, we plant and water and harvest all in the same day. Oh, look, an alfalfa sprout just poked its little head up from the dirt. Almost time to fire up the old combine. Anyway... As we begin, I know this is not your typical celebrity story, but as the 2016 U.S. presidential campaign kicks into high gear, Relic will, from time to time, comment on the nefarious hijinks of would-be presidential nominees as, as they gear up to become the acting head of the world's most imaginarily powerful nation. Because, truth be told, when it comes to entertainment and politics in America these days, the two are virtually indistinguishable. 
So, in our first story, during a radio interview, rabid evangelical Texas senator and generally crazy person Ted Cruz was asked to comment on the most likely cause of the devastating floods in May that happened in Texas and Oklahoma and killed over 40 people. Dismissing any possibility of climate instability, Mr. Cruz's harebrained response was to place the entirety of the blame on the indigenous Native American people doing their weird rain dances. And it was these heathens who caused all the flooding with their crazy voodoo black magic that literally spits in the face of Jehovah's glorious will. You went full retard, man. Never go full retard. Everybody knows you never go full retard. Now, if only them peace pipe-smoking, godless pagans could come up with some kind of magic dance that would make fundamentalist zealots like Ted Cruz disappear, well, that'd be just awesome. You know, personally, old Relic here would like nothing better than to see this deranged, miserably inadequate excuse for a human being become the next president of the United States. Because... As the old saying goes, every nation gets the government it deserves. And judging by the state of the American Union as it creeps towards its shared destiny with the late Roman Empire, I believe it richly deserves a narrow-minded idiot like Ted Cruz. Yeah, that'll fix him. Fix him good. Also, I was surprised to learn that Mr. Ted Cruz was born in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Also the hometown of Canada's own special little dictator, Prime Minister Stephen Harper. My guess is that it's not only the ruminant bovine population that produces excess methane gas down there in Cowtown. <coughs> Moving on... In our next story, actor and comedian Mr. Larry David made headlines this month when he and fellow comedian Jason Alexander were asked to present the nominees for Best Stage Musical at this year's 69th Annual Tony Awards in New York City. Larry David is best known as co-creator of the immensely popular 90s sitcom Seinfeld, which could also be known as Friends for Narcissists. Rated in the top 50 TV shows of all time, Seinfeld, literally a show about nothing, tells the story of four shallow, self-absorbed New Yorkers who... Being so caught up in the vapid minutiae of their hollow, empty lives, and who don't really give a damn about anyone but themselves, and then try to elicit laughter from other people's misfortunes, and was ultimately a show that carries the emotional and dramatic depth of a telephone book. Yet... After 20 years, the fact that reruns of this series still remain profitable 
and universally popular, should give one particular insight into the selfish and infantile mindset of your average American consumer. Anyways, getting back to this year's Tony Awards, when Larry David and his co-presenter, the vertically challenged George Costanza, got up on stage to announce the winner for Best Musical, Mr. Curb Your Enthusiasm decided to invoke the often overused political trope of anti-Semitism to explain why his own Broadway show, Fish in the Dark, failed to receive any nominations at this year's awards. Let's have a listen. People, people who were up to them would put aside the obvious anti-Semitism. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I said it. I said it. The anti-Semitism that denies a nomination to a Larry David or, or a, a Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Then yes. Then yes, I am a loser. Judging by all the laughter and applause that followed his remarks... It appears that many members of the audience thought that Mr. David was joking. But I'm here to tell you, dear listeners, that this was indeed no joke. In fact, according to this year's Bilderberg meetings, the scourge of rampant anti-Semitism in Hollywood is undoubtedly very real and could likely be the cause of many celebrity first world problems. Imagine your filthy Goyam roommate used up all the hot water in your shower. Well, you could cry. Anti-Semitism! Or maybe your ethnically diverse Gentile plastic surgeon botched up your butt implants. Well, there's a case of blatant... Anti-Semitism! And what about that time you were walking around Beverly Hills all day with a piece of culture organic kale stuck in your dazzling white veneers, and all your haughty shishka friends didn't even bother to tell you about it. Well, you know what to say. Anti-Semitism! It's real, folks. As real as the cringingly annoying whine in Adam Sandler's voice. Now, old Relic here can empathize with Mr. Larry David. The crusading, cape-wearing lawyer against this pervasively racist meme. Because it's a little-known fact that your humble host here was one of the original Khazars that converted to Judaism in 740 A.D. So I can speak from direct personal experience the gargantuan burden that being an uh, elitist white Aryan-adopted Semite carries on our unenlightened backwards planet. Of course, shortly after my conversion to Judaism, I decided to convert to Buddhism for a while, and then I dabbled some in Zoroastrianism and became a Shinto priest, and later on a little Hinduism, some Satanism, and then Methodist. But lately I've been fascinated by the pseudo-religion they call Scientology, searching in vain for a legitimate reason why so many Hollywood superstars have adopted a lifetime membership in 
L. Ron Hubbard's crazy alien cult. But that's all well and good. Let's just say that, religiously speaking, old Relic here's been pretty much all over the map, trying each one of them out at different times, like hairstyles or flavors of ice cream. And all I can say about that is, if you're looking for lazy, shortcut answers to life's difficult questions, are gullible and easily manipulated, and lack the insight and courage to think for yourselves that when it comes to organized religion, you can pretty much take your pick, and the results will be the same. Well, that's it for this week, kids. Time for me to turn down the flue on the rusty wood stove and put these tired old bones to bed. And until next time, it's your old friend Relic here saying, keep your feet on the ground and your eyes on the stars. All right, thanks for that, Relic. Uh, that was uh, very informative. I didn't know you were one of the original Khazarian uh, convertees. convertees to Judaism. That was quite a long time ago, so you you're think? actually older than I thought you were. I thought you were only about 500 years old, but that puts you at a few hundred years extra, no? Yeah, um, he's a millennium man. Yeah. And a preacher. Absolutely, he's a man of many hidden talents, and uh, we definitely have to get him on the show live sometime and uh, pick his brains. Uh, anyway, we're going to leave it there for this week, folks. We hope you enjoyed the show. We hope you found it informative. We will be back next week, hopefully, with an interview with uh, a former BBC journalist and Irish journalist called Anne Cadwallader, and she's written a book about uh, state uh, sanctioned killings in uh, Ireland uh, in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And she's written a very good book called Lethal Allies. Um, so we plan to be talking to her uh, this time next week. So we hope you will join us for that. Until then, um, thanks for listening and thanks to our callers and thanks to our chatters. And we'll yeah, have a good one. We'll see you next week. Bye.